Amen. So we're looking at uh, Colossians 2, verses 1 through 15 this morning. And, um, and here, Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. And the church in Colossae is kind of located where uh, modern-day Turkey is. If you know where that is, um, back in, in uh, ancient times, it was the area of Asia Minor, they called it. But it's basically where modern-day Turkey is. And specifically, the church that Paul is writing to is located in the Lycus Valley there. And there were two other churches that were nearby. There was both the church uh, at Colossae, Laodicea, and then there was an additional church at Hierapolis that was founded by Paul's colleague Epaphras. And here, Paul is writing to the Colossian church uh, to encourage them and address some issues. And so um, he's writing this. Uh, this this text this morning from a Roman prison cell, and you know if you're if you are writing from a prison, the chances are that you're probably not going to be in the best mood. But look what Paul writes. Look in uh, verse one of Colossians two. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea, and for all who have who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so he starts off with this, this exhortation to them. But it's interesting, his tone in which he writes, because you would think, like, if you're in jail, you'd be bummed out, and you wouldn't be, like, pumped on writing some encouraging note. You'd just be like... You know, writing to people about telling them about how hard of a time you're having and, like, pray for me. It's get, you know, this is a really long trial. But here, Paul writes in a tone that's much different than we would, we would assume coming out of someone who's in jail. In verse 1 there, it says that he, you know, it's indicating that he writes out of love and concern for them. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. For those who have not seen me face to face, wherein he writes there and he says that he has this great conflict or this great struggle. It's the root word that he uses there is uh, the word that we uh, we get our word agony from. He, he's he's tumultuous inside. He's agonizing over their condition. He's laboring in prayer for them, and it was difficult work for him to do that. And he's there, um, you know, striving and laboring in prayer for the Colossian church. And as he's praying for them, we, we're going to look at some of the things that he writes to them, the things that, we, that he's going to, uh, pray, uh, to the, pray towards them. And this morning we're going to look at the text in three sections. We're going to look at it in, in terms of, first, Paul's prayer. Secondly, a warning of danger. And thirdly, the fullness of Christ. These are the three areas that Paul's going to address in our text this morning. So first, Paul's prayer. Here's what he prays for them. In verse uh, 2, we pick up and he says, He prays that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. When he prays that, that, that they would be encouraged, what he's praying there is that they would, they would be confirmed or strengthened within their heart. He prays that they would have unity, you know, that they would be knit together. If you ever think about things that are, that are, uh, are knitting, you're taking, um, you know, this one kind of long piece of string and, and, and you're kind of looping it around to make uh, that one kind of portion into a larger body, a, a larger item that you're uh, knitting there. You're, you're um, you know, you're melding these two 
portions together so that when you pull them apart, they're stuck together. This is the type of thing that Paul is praying for them. He wants them to be encouraged, confirmed, strengthened. He wants them to be united in love together. The second thing that he prays for them is that they would have full assurance and understanding. Now, this is key here. He says, he prays that they would reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery. That's what he prays. It's, it's a little bit kind of confusing if you read it, and kind of sounds a little bit redundant, and in a sense, it is. But where do we get this knowledge, this full understanding that, that, the, that Paul is praying for them? He, he wants them to know this understanding and knowledge. And what's this mystery that he's talking about? He says, you know, that he wants them to know the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Well, what's the mystery? Look at verse 2. He says, it's to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And then he gives us a little bit about that mystery. He gives us a little bit of info there. He says that in Christ... In this mystery, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, when it talks about being hidden there, it's not talking about like we're hiding it like a, a secret uh, that we want to keep from someone, but rather it's speaking of these things are being stored up. They're being kept in this place, and you can find them hidden in Christ. You can go to Christ. What Paul is saying here is that, all treasure and wisdom and, and knowledge, they're within Christ. Paul's telling them here that the wisdom and knowledge is within Christ and Christ alone. Now, the thing that Paul's praying for them here is something that he encourages uh, all the churches in real consistently. In Colossians 1, he prays this. He returns uh, to the gospel there. Earlier in the book, he prays this for them. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, uh, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. When he is uh, writing to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4.1, he writes, I, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He's always calling the, the, the churches and the people to discover that worth, to discover that treasure, to discover the knowledge of the, and wisdom, the mystery of God, which is Christ. And he says, if you want to discover these things, if you want to discover the mystery of God, if you want... If you want to find that riches and treasure and knowledge and wisdom, you will find it only hidden in Christ. Now, the second thing, uh, or, or the next thing that Paul kind of prays here, is that this Colossian church would guard against theological deception. If you look at verse 4, he says this, I say this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, the reason that Paul is encouraging them in the first place to, uh, to find these riches in Christ, to find all these things hidden in Christ and Christ alone, is because they were facing um, 
theological deception at the time. The Colossian church was, was facing a group called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, they, this was this group, and they kind of boasted of uh, this, that they had this understanding that surpassed others who followed Christ. You know, it was, it was this idea that there's more beyond what's in the pages of Scripture. You, you can find additional wisdom beyond what you find in Christ. And so it was really, uh, with, the, with the Gnostics, it was really this um, a pridefulness. You know, you wanted to kind of outrank each other. But the way that, that Jesus has laid things out for his church is that everyone's on the same level. Everyone is a sinner saved by grace. You cannot earn your salvation, but rather it is found by placing your active trust in Christ. And here the Gnostics wanting to, to appear more spiritual, to, to have people you know, like them, if they kind of have the secret, like, oh, you want to be a little bit more spiritual? Let me show you the special wisdom that you can't get from anybody else but from us. You can't find it on your own. You need us for it. And so this was kind of this group that they were facing. <clears throat> and Paul, writing there, he writes to them, his prayer is that they would guard against theological deception. In verse 4, he says that. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, we don't use the word plausible very much. You probably only hear it like on, uh, you know, like... Uh, crime shows like on TV when they're in the courtroom they're like that's plausible like that's the only time you're really going to kind of hear it within you know no one's like really using that in regular context and it often can mean you know uh, in our language it can mean oh it's it's probable there's a possibility and so when Paul says no one may may delude you with probable arguments that's, that's not really uh, entirely truthful of the word that he's getting at, what he's trying to use here. What he uses here um, in the original text to, for, for plausible is a word that means persuasiveness of speech, something that is deceptive, and it's a discourse that leads people specifically into error. They're, they're coming at you with an argument that could seem probable, but it is intended to direct you into error. It's going into um, an incorrect conclusion. And so here, Paul's encouraging them to be theologically sound. And this is something that, that we need to consider. You know, we want to be encouraging one another in the faith. And, and when we encourage one another in our faith, when we come alongside one another, when we do that, it guards against theological error. It guards against that deception, we have to sharpen one another, as Proverbs 27 tells us, as, as iron uh, you know, sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. When we speak of the goodness of God, if we share, when we share of what the Lord's doing in our lives and, and we deal with the questions that we have with one another, it allows us to confront those things and not have you know, someone swoop in and, and communicate incorrect doctrine. And so we want to be faithful to that. In the book of Galatians, they were kind of facing a similar uh, situation with a different group called the Judaizers, and Paul encouraged them to bear one another's burdens. You know, he was telling them to love one another and to come alongside one another, not just, hey, deal with your own questions and your trash on your own, but this is a family matter where to love on one another and to come alongside one another. 
In, uh, to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 3.2, Paul writes, he says, I sent Timothy, and Timothy was kind of Paul's protege he sent out, someone he was training there. He says, I sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. He was sent specifically to spur them on, to encourage them, to, to encourage sound doctrine. Now, when we do this, it's not just a matter of like building self-esteem and like, oh yeah, you're doing a good job, or you know, trying to kind of make people feel good, but it's pointing each other directly to Christ. It's, it's reminding each other that you've been adopted by Christ into his family. You've been accepted. You're loved by God. There, there are things that we want to speak to each other in order to remind each other of what we have, of that worth that we have in Christ, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has already done for us. And so Paul is writing to encourage them uh, to guard against this theological uh, error, to guard against theological deception. And now he goes on <coughs> to remind them uh, of some things. He, he, goes, he starts off um, in, in verse 6. If you look at verse 6, he says, guarding against theological error, I want you to guard against that. And then he says in verse 6, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He's telling them to remember the beginning of their faith. We need to remember the beginning of our faith and, and the simplicity of that faith in, in which we receive Christ and walk in it. Paul is doing this. He's saying, if you realize that you started out and you were good and you were saved by faith, you don't need to add on more. You're not going to graduate to like another level the same way that you started is sufficient to continue in. He's wanting to communicate this to them. If, if they realize that, that in the beginning of their faith, they were saved by grace, when he's telling them that, he's calling them to consider the work that Christ has done. He's calling them to remember what Jesus has already done for them. And Paul knows that if they consider that, if they remember what Jesus has already done for them, if they realize the greatness and, and fullness of the work of Christ, it'll be enough. They won't fall into this theological deception because they will see that Christ's work is complete. It's full. It is sufficient. And so he is trying to remind them of that. He's telling them all wisdom, all knowledge, it's found in Christ and Christ alone. Therefore, receive, as you receive Christ, continue in that. Walk in that. <coughs> now, Paul tells them, and he tells us, to continue to walk with Jesus in the same way that we received him. So how do we receive him? Paul uses... Uh, two metaphors here. He uses a, an agrarian metaphor and an architectural metaphor. He deals with it in two ways. First, he deals with it in verse 7 where he says that we should walk in him, verse 7, rooted, speaking of that agrarian metaphor. Secondly, the architectural one, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. Paul uses these, these things uh, to remind them of that. And these things would echo back to the words of Jesus in John 15, when Jesus himself said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, it, it is he that bears much fruit. 
for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. What Paul is saying here is you need to be rooted. As you have therefore received Christ, continue to walk in him. The next thing he says is rooted. Be connected to this vine. Be a branch that is connected to the life source. If you are disconnected from it, if you are separate from that, if you're a branch that's not connected to the root, to the vine, you're going to wither and you will ultimately be cast off and thrown into the fire. Paul uses this metaphor here uh, to communicate that, to call them back to that simplicity of being connected to Jesus. They didn't do anything else except place active faith in the work of Christ upon the cross. In 1 Corinthians 3, he reminds the Corinthian church, similarly, of uh, being built up upon Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.10, he says, and uses an architectural metaphor there, he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's saying there that you have to build upon that root, that source, that foundation of Christ and Christ alone. He uses these, these metaphors again and again to show the importance. The most important portion of a house is the foundation. If you have a faulty foundation, and, you know, something goes down, you have an earthquake, or it rains too much, and your foundation starts to slip, you're in big trouble. Or if you build on a foundation that's all thrashed and not super solid, your house will crumble. Here, Paul is indicating that the importance upon which we, uh, of, of, the, of the faithfulness and goodness of that which we build our faith, the foundation, the source, is everything. He says that they should be rooted, built up, is what he's wanting to communicate there. And then he says, established in the faith. Being rooted and built up on, on a solid foundation, being rooted in Christ, it produces someone who will be established in the faith. If you are indeed following this prescription here, if you make it your purpose to be rooted and built up in Christ, you will indeed find yourself established in the faith. It produces an established believer. And then he says something, he goes on uh, to make one more note. And it's an important note, something we kind of gloss by real quick as kind of like Paul has these long run-on sentences and it's like, all right, Paul, just kind of like get it all out because we know you just love like taking up as many words as possible when you're laying out your arguments. And it's something we kind of glaze by real quickly and, you know, just um, hop right over. But he finishes it with something really important. <coughs> he says that we should be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. So there's this discipleship factor that's entering. We need to be teaching one another. Remember as I was saying that we need to be encouraging one another? This is what we need to be teaching each other to be rooted and built up in the faith, you know, and being established there as we're teaching one another. And then he goes on to this really important thing. He says, just as you were taught, 
abounding in thanksgiving. This is key. This is like gigantic. It's something that it seems like, okay, yeah, we're just going to like, of course, yeah, you want to be thankful. That's a good thing. It's good to say thank you to people. But what Paul is, is saying here is he's saying that you should have an abundance of thanksgiving. You should be overflowing with thankfulness. He's not talking just about like being a thankful person, you know, when someone does something nice for you. But what he's saying is you should be responding to the work of Christ. You should be rem- remembering what Jesus has done for you and being thankful again and again. You should be overflowing. You should be considering the work that he has done and it should produce thankfulness. You should consider it again. It should produce thankfulness. You should remember what Jesus has done for you. It should produce thankfulness. And when we give thanks for the work of of Jesus, of what he's done, it causes us to recall that we're thankful for that work and what he's done for us. It calls us, it reminds us of God's grace to us. And when we remember God's grace, when we recall that, it guards us from that theological error. When, when we're able to, to place within our, ourselves this heart of thankfulness, you don't have room to consider, you know, what other theological lies that people are going to deceive you with because you're remembering the simplicity of, uh, of how you've been saved. You're remembering just that simple, simple nature of, of how of the grace of God and how he's already done anything, everything for you and you cannot do anything to add to it. You're saying so focused upon what Jesus has already done that you will not fall into theological error in just a simple way as, as um, they're tempted to do. And so those are the, the couple things that Paul prays for them. The second thing we look at here is Paul's warning of danger. He's, now Paul's ready to kind of deal with their specific... Um, situation, the error that they're dealing with, that they're being threatened with in this church. He, he says in verse 8, <clears throat> see that no one takes you captive. Paul says, look, don't be taken captive. Beware. Know what's going on. He, and then he warns of a few things that are likely to take them captive. And we face these kind of same things today. So look at verse 8, and we'll continue and see what the things that Paul's warning of that we could be taken captive by. He says in verse 8, Don't, uh, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So the first thing there, philosophy, it's, it's translated, you know, love of wisdom. But this was more likely pertaining to a specific philosophy. Paul's not saying like, yeah, you can't love wisdom at all. You can't, you know, be interested in, in being wise. That, that doesn't really, you know, make a lot of sense because in James 1.5, uh, we're, we're told if anybody ask, lacks wisdom, ask of God, you know, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. He's like, if you want more wisdom, ask God for more wisdom and he'll give you wisdom. You, you, want, you love wisdom, you want more, ask God. Paul's not speaking out against all philosophy, but rather this is more likely pertaining to a specific philosophy that they are facing here. Um, And it it appears that he's speaking out against this type of empty deceit. Paul's not saying here that, that, uh, you know, all wisdom is the problem, but only the type that leads to 
this empty deceit. Uh, the wisdom that he's mentioning there, it's, it's worldly in nature. It, it has a, kind of a specific application. And then the empty deceit there that it's speaking of, it's more of like a, um, it's referring to kind of false teaching and, um, and really kind of pertaining to the context uh, that they're facing without having, you know, the amount of time to like really delve super deep into it. Paul's warning them against this love of wisdom that's based upon false teaching. He's saying that the teachings that, that are being communicated to you or that will try to be are based upon falsehoods. They're, they're, they're futile. They're, they're completely without truth. Uh, specifically, the words that he's using there, it, it's meant to use of things that will not succeed, that they don't have any purpose at all. That these are things just to, that will um, communicate, um, you know, they're just in, that will end kind of you in going in circles. You're not doing anything, you're not learning anything, you're not growing. Paul is warning against this. So he's warning against philosophy and empty deceit. And then he says that these things are according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world. The first thing there um, that, he, that he speaks of uh, about human tradition, it could be the traditions of uh, the Gnostics and those who were trying to deceive. It could, uh, there's a, a bunch of theories kind of surrounding that. But, and then he talks about according to the, the elemental spirits of the world. Some of your uh, scriptures may say, um, or translations may say, uh, basic principles. And the original word there that he uses actually indicates something that is more of um, a, de a demonic force that would oppose uh, believers, that would oppose those who are walking with the Lord. And so he says that, that these empty, or the philosophy and the empty deceit, they're according to human tradition, they're according to these demonic forces, and most importantly, he says, he goes on and says, they're not according to Christ. Worst of all, they're not according to Christ. They could seem good, but in the end, they're completely uh, with error. They're, they're not according to Christ. And then he goes on uh, in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. He tells us that the things that the people are being offered, and, and, and really, I mean, we're kind of offered these same things in our world today. Philosophy, you know, empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, you know, demonic uh, attack and, 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 you know, activity, trying to persuade. They're not according to Christ. And the people here that Paul's writing to, and, and us as a culture, we're being offered this as an extra. It's like, you know, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. You need also these other things. You, you need to know this extra bit that, you know, is going to take you to the next level or make you more spiritual. And here's what Paul says in response in verse 9. He says, and now we're kind of moving on to the, the third point, looking at the fullness of Christ. Paul's going to communicate here in these texts in the coming verses that Jesus isn't deficient of anything. He's complete. He's full. Everything that we need, we have in him. He says in verse 9, <coughs> For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, when we speak in our culture, um, when we want to talk about something, we kind of, we have uh, superlatives that we use. You know, when you're talking about like, it's like, oh, that's, uh, that's good, better, best. We have different levels that indicate. In, um, in the ancient languages and in Greek, when you want to communicate something, uh, the, the level of a, a superlative, you use the same word again. So when we read and Jesus is speaking there and in, in uh, the Gospels and he says, truly, truly, I say to you. He's not just like getting repetitive and poetic saying truly, truly. He's saying, pay attention. This is the weight with which I speak. Truly, truly. Or in, when the angels sing in, in the Bible and we hear their songs and they say, holy, holy, holy. They're saying that God is so holy. They're trying to communicate the holiness of God with the three rep, rep, uh, repetitions of the word. That's how they say, like, the greatest level of holiness. They say it again and again and again. Now, here in our text, we kind of grasp a glimpse of that in English. Uh, some of your texts might not say this, but here in verse 9, it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It doesn't just say the fullness of deity dwells bodily. You know, it says the whole fullness. It's making a repetition to say that he's so complete, I'm going to repeat this again and again to you to, to show you that there's nothing lacking. Jesus is completely God. He has all authority. He's telling them, look to Jesus. His work is complete. The battle's been won. We're already heirs with Christ. He's, we're, as his inheritors, we are not missing anything. He reminds us of what God has already done for us through the gospel. Here's what he says in verse 10, uh, or verse 9, rolling into verse 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he tells us what we have. In you have already been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul tells us, you've already been filled. If you're already filled, you can't get any more. You already have all the fullness. You can't receive any more. So if you're already filled and someone's trying to say, like, oh, you need a little bit more, you don't have room for any more. You already have everything you need. This is what Paul's trying to communicate to the Colossian church and to us this morning. It's easy to operate in a manner where we want to add to the work of Christ. We want to, you know, grasp the, the more things that seem more spiritual out there to kind of go to the next level. But what, what Paul's saying is there is no next level. You have the fullness of Christ. You're already filled. And Jesus is this, this head of all rule and authority. You're already filled with him. And he's the head of everything. He has all rule and all authority. If, and no one supersedes him. So you can't get more if you're already filled with the head, the, the ruler of everything. He's telling us we're complete in Christ. We don't need to add on to his work. And when we try to do that, frankly, it's unneeded and exhausting. When you're trying to add on to what Jesus has already done, you just end up getting real tired walking in circles. But Jesus came to live that perfect life for us so that way we could receive him in faith 
and rest because we can't add on to his work. He wants us to know him, not to add on to his work. And so Paul tells us we're already filled in him. And then he goes on to list out the completeness of the work of Christ. We're going to read through 11 through 15, and we're going to finish up here. It says this in verse 11. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Paul goes on to list now, after telling us Christ is the ruler, he is the ultimate authority, and you're already filled with him, and then he goes on to tell us, here's what he's done already for you. Just in case you need reminding, just in case you need to, to know what he's done, he gives us a list. In verse 11, he tells us that we were circumcised with a circumcision made without, without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of the Christ. He tells us in verse 12 that we've been buried with him in baptism. In verse 12, he also tells us that we were raised with him through faith. And not only that we were raised with him through faith, but God who raised Christ from the dead also has made us raised with Christ. In verse 13, he goes on and he tells us that God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses. So God made us alive and God has forgiven us our trespasses. He has canceled, in verse 14, the record of our debt that stood against us. He set it aside, and he didn't just cancel it by like saying, like, oh, I'm over that, I'm canceling that. He paid it himself. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He dealt with it himself. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. These are all the things that he's done for us. Notice there that Paul ends again. Uh, you know, you know uh, we kind of have talked about those kind of sandwich techniques. Paul kind of does it again here. He ends it in verse 15 by saying, he disarmed rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame. But earlier up in verse 10, we see that Christ is the ultimate ruler and he has the ultimate authority. We've already been filled with him who is the head of all rule and all authority. He's taken those who would be considered, you know, under him as rulers and had authority. He's put them to open shame. He's, he's dealt with that. And he's done it by triumphing over them. This is the work that Christ has done for us. Paul's reminding the Colossian church, and he's reminding us this morning of what Christ has already done for us and showing us that we cannot add and we don't need to add to what Jesus has already done. 
Now, remember how we talked earlier about kind of that little phrase that we pass over, that, little, that abounding in thanksgiving? Paul is demonstrating to them, you know how he says, as you've received Christ, therefore walk in him. As you have received him in that simplicity, in that manner of recognizing the grace of God, understanding the work of Christ upon the cross, and then brilliantly Paul goes on to explain it to us again, to show us, here's what, here's what you need to remember. As you've therefore received him, and he says, here's how you've received him. Here's what he's done for you. You haven't participated in anything except you were dead in, a, in every verse. And then God made you alive. You haven't done anything, Paul says. And he says, you know, uh, as you've received him, now walk in him, rooted and built up, established in the faith, as you were taught. And then... And that's what we just kind of looked at here in 11 through 15. This way that, that we are to be rooted and established in these things, established in our faith as we review them, as we remember them, established in the faith. And then, as we consider them, we should be abounding in thanksgiving. It makes us want to, to respond in worship, to respond in thanksgiving when we read verses 11 through 15 and see all the things that God has done for us because we couldn't do them ourselves because we were dead. Verse 11, circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. We've been buried with him in baptism. We're raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. God made us alive together with him. These are all things that God has done for us. He's forgiven us all our trespasses. When we were sinners, when we were his enemies, when we hated him, he sent Christ to pay the penalty for our sin. Verse 14, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He's done the work. He's finished it. He completed it. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities because he is the head of ruler uh, of rulers and authority. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul is intending the Colossian church, and he's intending us to respond in thankfulness thankfulness and worship this morning. And so after hearing the work of Christ, we must respond in that. We must remember to return here to what God has already done for us. Not to what we can do for him, but to what he has already done for us and to respond in thanksgiving and to respond in worship. Let's do that. Let's pray and we'll get to it. Lord, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful that you have already done a great work on our behalf. And so, Lord, this morning, we want to respond in worship. We don't just want to sit there, hear a, a fun little Bible study, and, and move on, Lord. But we want to consider what you've done for us. We want to, to lift our hands, Lord. We want to, um, to focus our, our, our hearts and our minds upon you. We want to give you our attention and our affection this morning. We want, Lord, to receive from your word this morning Lord, as we go out into the world, we don't want, just want to, to live this life where we're beaten down, Lord, but we want to be on guard against theological error, against the deception of the world, against the, the philosophy and empty deceit, the traditions of men and, and the principles of the world, these demonic forces that would oppress us. 
<clears throat> and so, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to consider Jesus often, to consider the cross, and to respond in thankfulness every day. And so, Lord, as we respond this morning, we pray that you would, um, that you would just cause our hearts to overflow with worship, Lord, to, resp- to overflow with a response to your goodness, to your faithfulness, to the work that you've already done. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, um, you would allow us, Lord, just to focus upon you now. We love you. Amen.